Morning, everyone. So, how are you this morning? Okay, so I don't have a lot of time, but just bear with me. I have a lot of information <laughs> that I want to share. So, I'm going to re-preach the message that I did during the lockdown. Not many of you were here that morning. It was the first session. It wasn't live as well. And it fits in perfectly with Pastor John's series at the moment. So, for those that were here that morning, don't worry. I'm going to add a lot more detail. So, you can take out your notebooks along. All right. Um, so, before I start, I just want to say this. that Okay, so we know in the Bible there's symbolism. We know there are parables. We know there are analogies. We know there's some stuff that we need to le- read literal as well. But there's a certain tone of language throughout the Bible, a certain terminology used in the Bible from Genesis all the way to Revelation. Now, that terminology, that tone of language is based on the historical context of the Bible. It's not based on our context. So for us to correctly interpret the Bible, apply it to our lives, we need to understand it first in the historical context that it was written in. If we see the truth that was revealed there, we can take that truth and apply it to our lives. But if you want to interpret the Bible into our context directly, that's why we have like 30,000 plus denominations today. All right. So we need to understand the historical context. We need to understand the tone of language used in the Bible. Now, one example, me and J.D. are currently studying the first book of Corinthians in our studies. So, in 1 Corinthians 11, where it speaks about the head covering of the woman and should they speak, should they not speak in the church, they presented six different views for us. Now, the one view is actually based on the historical context of the Bible. Now, it says in those times, the women veiled themselves, they covered themselves to protect their dignity. All right? Even the Emperor Augustus, he forbid the prostitutes and the slave women to cover themselves because, according to him, they were not dignified enough. And for the prostitutes, it was also a way of saying, I'm sexually available, by not covering themselves. So when a woman got engaged to a man, she was to veil herself, to cover herself, basically to say, I'm not available anymore, I'm taken. All right. So just something, it's just very important to understand the historical context. We have the same practice today in India and Iran. The Christian women, they still cover themselves. Because if they don't do that, they are seen as immoral. But it's not a custom in our society today, where we live. All right, so women wear what they want these days. Okay, so, just, so it's very important to understand the historical context. Now, okay, so let's jump into it. Let's go to John 14, verse 2 to 3. My topic today is the Father's house. All right, so let's read from verse 2. So it says, my father's house has many rooms. This is the NIV version. I think the King James version says mansions. So it says, my father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. All right. So the father's house. When Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you, he was actually referring to an ancient Jewish wedding. So what happened, the wedding took part in about three stages. I'm not going to go into great detail about that because I want to focus on the father's house. But what happens first is the father and the son, some say the son will go alone, some say the father and the son, 
but they will go to the bride's house and the, and the father's house. Then they will go there and they will actually they will set up a covenant. They will actually the father, the son actually will pay the bride's father a price for the bride. All right. It was also called the Hebrew term there. It was called the Moar in Hebrew. And then um, it was also known as the betrothal. All right. The Hebrew term there is, I'm not sure how to pronounce his name, but Udesin or something like that. But that was the Hebrew term used for that. So the father and the son would go there. The son would pay a price to the, to the bride's father. And they were like engaged, but it's not like we understand it today. How they understood it that time is they were like legally married there already. All right. What happened there also, somewhere there, both the bridegroom and the bride got baptized. Now, the baptism was called the, the mikvah or the mikveh in Hebrew. Now, the mikvah was used for different purification purposes in those days. One of the purposes was when a Gentile converted to Judaism, he went through a series of purification processes, and then one of them was the mikvah. He needed to get baptized, and then that signified his adoption into Israel, his adoption into new citizenship, to be partaker of the blessings of Israel. All right, so both the bride and the bridegroom were baptized as well. Okay, then after they paid the price, and like I said, legally they were married at that stage already, then the father and his son will go back to the father's house, and they will go and prepare a place for their bride. So the bride will stay with her father at that time. It happens many times, it will like be a year or two years, that the bride will still stay with her father, but she wasn't available to anybody else anymore. All right, she was legally married. So then they will go back and prepare a place at the father's house, usually. So usually they will go to the father's house, and they will just build an extension to the father's house to prepare a place for the bride. Now, when the place was done, when the extension was done, the father will decide and say, okay, it's done now, and he will send the son, okay, go back, go fetch your wife, your bride. So the father will decide that, and then he sent the son back. Now, when the father told the son, okay, go fetch your bride, they will sound the trump. Now, in the meantime, the bride will stay ready. She will stay ready, and when she hears the trump, quickly put on a wedding garment, and she will meet, go out and meet her husband or the bridegroom. All right. And then the marriage ceremony will take place, the marriage supper will take place, and all of that. So that was, so the marriage supper took place here. There's a lot more detail, but I'm not going to go into all of that now. So it will take place here, and then they will live their lives together from there. Now, let's look at what Jesus did. First, he came down in John 1, he came to his own, they didn't receive him. But then he paid the price on the cross, you all know that. All right, just another thing. This was also known as the, in the Hebrew, it was known as the nusim. All right, it comes from the word naso, it means to lift up. All right, it means to lift up. So Jesus came, he paid the price on the cross. That was about plus minus 30 AD. All right, just to throw in some nuggets there, when Jesus paid the price, he didn't pay the price to God or to the Father, all right? God is love. Love doesn't need a sacrifice from you to forgive you, all right? And 
1 Corinthians says that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. He was in Jesus on the cross. All right. Secondly, he also didn't pay the price to the devil. All right. We never belonged to the devil. When a thief steals something, that item doesn't belong to him. All right. The sacrifice was for man. Man's fallen mindset needed sacrifice to satisfy his guilt. That's what the sacrifice was for. All right. Secondly, at the resurrection, you can go read in, it's in John 20 verse 17, Luke 24 verse 39, Ephesians 1 from verse 17. But when Jesus was resurrected, Mary met him outside of the tomb. Then he told Mary, don't touch me because I haven't ascended to my father yet. But then he told Mary, go tell the disciples, go tell my brothers, I'm ascending to the father. All right. After a while, when he appeared to the disciples, he told them, he told Thomas, okay, touch me now. All right. So he went to prepare a place at the resurrection when he ascended to the Father. So this happened at the resurrection. All right. Then the marriage supper. I will come back to this. All right. But we can read about this in Revelation 19, verse 7 to 9. But I will come back to this. Now, when Jesus said, going back to John 14, Verse 2 to 3, he says, in my father's house there are many rooms. The Greek word there only appears twice in the New Testament. It appears in that verse and then also in John 14, verse 23. It means it, when Jesus said, he and the father will come and make their abode with you. All right? So it actually it means to abide. It's an abiding place. All right? So in the father's house, there's many rooms to abide. All right? Now, the Jews... When Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you in my father's house, they didn't think of heaven somewhere or somewhere out in the sky, flying away. They thought of the temple in Jerusalem. All right? To them, that was the father's house. When Jesus entered Jerusalem and he chased out all the guys that did business in the temple, he said, my house is a house of prayer. All right? So the Jews, to them, the temple in Jerusalem was the father's house. Now, it's very important for us to know their whole religion was built on the temple of Jerusalem, all right? Because according to them, that's the way they thought. They could only get healing at the temple. They could only get forgiveness at the temple. They could only get close to God when they go to the temple because according to them, God lived in that temple. That was the only place where God lived, all right? So we have to keep that in mind. Now, God gave Moses an instruction to build a tabernacle. Now, the temple in Jerusalem was also based on this. There were a few modifications later on, but it was based on this. All right. So first we had the Holy of Holies. All right. And very important to know, the high priest could enter here only once a year. Once a year. The Ark of the Covenant was also in here, and they thought God lived here. According to them, God lived here, and they saw this as heaven. I will explain more about this. But they saw that as heaven. The second compartment was the holy place. Very important, only the priests could enter there. And they performed their daily duties here. They saw this as earth. Then the third compartment was the outer court. All right? There was a, a brazen laver here with water in. The brazen altar was there where they did the sacrifices the priest washed themselves before they entered the holy place. All right? This was also called the molten sea. 
In 1 Kings 7, verse 23 to 26, in Solomon's temple. You can go read about it, all right? So this was called the sea. Now, Josephus. Josephus was a famous Jewish historian. Just a bit of background on him. He was born in about 37 AD. That was just a few years after the resurrection. And he came from a priestly background, all right? And he was also a military leader of the Jews in Galilee. He fought in the first Roman Jewish war. And then later on, I think it was about 67 AD, he surrendered to Rome. So he was taken hostage. Now in that time, it's very important to know, Nero was the emperor of Rome. He started a brutal persecution on the Christians in 64 AD. Very brutal. He, he was, yeah, he was, he was very evil. He actually, he took Christians, fastened them on poles at night, and then set them on fire to light the city. That's how brutal he was. Now, he died in 68 AD, Nero. So what happens, and many saw that as the fall of Rome, or it was actually a bit of chaos in Rome at that time, because it was known as the year of the four emperors. Because then another emperor came, another one, another one. And at the end, Vespasian was called to be emperor of Rome. Now, at that time, he was the military leader of the Roman army. They were on their way to Jerusalem to attack it. But then he was called up to be emperor. So his son Titus took over to be military leader, and then they went from there. Now, interesting that um, Josephus, he had a prophecy. He prophesied to Vespasian that he will become emperor. And after he became emperor, it was about 69 AD, he released Josephus. And Josephus became like an interpreter for Titus, his son. So he, he was interpreted to the Jews to plead with the Jews to surrender to the Romans. But the Jews didn't do that. They, just, they saw me as a traitor and everything like that. But important to remember or to take notice of, Josephus was an eyewitness to the destruction of Jerusalem. He wrote about it. He, wrote, he has a book, The Jewish War. Very notable work of him. All right. So he was an eyewitness to everything that happened before, during, and after. Later, he became a Roman citizen as well. Now, he says the tabernacle was built according to creation. So three parts. You've got heaven, earth, and sea. He said to the Jews, for them to enter the Holy of Holies, for the high priest to enter here, it was to enter heaven itself. That's how they saw it. The veil here that separated the Holy of Holies and the holy place separated heaven from earth, according to them. All right? Now, to take this to the Bible, and Tanya Annelise, she touched on it a few years back, I remember. In Isaiah 66, verse 1, it says, Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. All right? So heaven speaks about, it says, there's my throne. It speaks about authority. It speaks about rulership. Then he says, the earth is my footstool. That's where the authority is acted out. All right? So the thing that ruled the Jews, their throne, the throne that ruled them, was kept here in the Ark of the Covenant. The Ten Commandments was kept there. The Book of the Law was kept there. That is what ruled them. So this was the throne. This was their throne. And the priest, before they performed the duties of the law in the second compartment. 
You're going to read about that in Hebrews 9 verse 6. All right? So that authority was acted out here. All right. Okay. But let me show you quickly. Let's go to Deuteronomy 4 verse 26. I'm just going to use the NIV version today. So listen to what Moses says here. He says, I call the heavens and the earth. Now, heavens, in some translations say heaven, singular. So he says, I call the heaven and earth as witnesses against you this day, that you will quickly perish from the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. All right. Then he says in Deuteronomy 31 verse 26. So you guys remember the song of Moses and everything. Moses read the Lord to them, the song of Moses before he died and before they entered the promised land. Then he says that this, basically after he read the Lord to them, he says, Now take this book of the law and place it beside the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God. There it will remain as a witness against you. So what did we read in Deuteronomy 4? He says, I call the heavens or the heaven and earth as a witness against you. That heaven and earth is not the heaven and earth as we understand it. It is the heaven and the earth as a witness against them. The law. The book of the law. Now, when Jesus came on the scene, he started healing people left and right. He started forgiving people left and right. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. You can only come through me to the Father. He said things like, I and the Father are one. Now, basically what he was saying, I'm the temple. There's a new way now. The way is not there at the temple there in Jerusalem. I'm the way. I'm the temple. That's why the Jews got so mad. Because he's making himself the temple. He's making himself the, the temple of God. And according to them, God only stayed in Jerusalem, in the temple. All right. So that's why they got so mad. Now, Jesus said in John 17, when he said prepare a place, he was actually saying to prepare a place within him, a fellowship, a place of fellowship within him. He's prayed to the Father in John 17. You can go read from verse 22 and onwards. He said, I pray to the Father that they be one in us as we are one. All right. So he was actually speaking about a place of fellowship within him, an abiding place within him. He wasn't speaking about the temple in Jerusalem. The Jews thought he was speaking about the, the temple in Jerusalem. All right. Now let's go to Hebrews 9 from verse 1. So it says, Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. The tabernacle was set up in its first room with the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. The second compartment there. Behind the second curtain, that was the veil, was a room called the most holy place. The holy of holies. Which had the golden altar of incense and the gold covered ark of the covenant. This ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. So they performed the duties in the holy place. But only the high priest entered the inner room, the Holy of Holies, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed. Some translations say manifested. 
as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. So meaning the temple in Jerusalem. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already there or here, he went through that greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made of human hands. That is to say, is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining internal redemption. Then I just want to read verse 14. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the internal spirit, offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our conscience from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God. And then verse 24. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands, that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Okay, so some verses that I want to point out here. So at first it says, verse 9, it says that this tabernacle, this temple was an illustration. The word there in Greek is the, word, the same word that was used when Jesus spoke in parables. It's a word for parable, all right? So it says this was a parable of the present time, that time back then. So it was a parable. Then it also says that this was a copy or a figure of the true tabernacle. Read that in verse 11 and 24. It's a copy of the true tabernacle. Jesus came by the means of the true tabernacle. Parable of the present time. All right. Now, a parable is a comparison that reveals a certain truth. It's not the truth itself, but it reveals something. So that means that tabernacle, the temple at that time, revealed something. All right? Now, it also says it's a figure of the true tabernacle. Now, what was the true tabernacle? How did Jesus come here? He came in a body. That was a true tabernacle. It's, a, it's something not made of human hands. Something made by God. All right? If you read Hebrews 8 verse 2, let me just go there quickly. I'm going to read from verse 1. He says, now the main point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by human being. Then he says, um, if you go read in verse 5, he says, they serve, speaking about the priest on the earth back then, the Pharisees and the priest, they serve at the sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. A copy and a shadow. All right? It was a copy. That was a copy and a shadow of the true tabernacle. Then he says, this is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Then if you go to verse 8, then God says, God found fault with the people and said, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. Because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds, write them on their hearts. So Jesus, he came by the true tabernacle, which is a man's body. And he's the high priest over the true tabernacle, which is man, serving in their hearts, ministering in their hearts, writing the new laws in their hearts. Okay, so that's a true tabernacle. So this was a copy of the true tabernacle, which is man. 
It says, this was a, also a parable of the present time. Now, we have to remember there was a veil there. A veil speaks of separation. A veil speaks also of alienation from God, separated from God. Now, we're reading 2 Corinthians 3 from verse 14 to 15. It says that as long as the old covenant is read, as long as Moses read, there is still a veil remaining on their hearts. Paul was speaking about the unbelieving Jews. All right? As long as they stuck to the old covenant, there was a veil on their hearts. They couldn't see. All right? 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4, going on from that chapter, says, The God of that world blinded their hearts. That God was, wasn't some devil out there. It was the law. It was that temple that blinded their hearts to see who the true tabernacle is. Because they thought the temple in Jerusalem. That's the temple. That's where God lives. And Jesus came to show a new way. That man is the tabernacle. The body is the true tabernacle of God. All right. Okay. So this was a parable of the present time unbelieving Jews. Now, let me see where I am. In Acts 7 verse 48, I think it was Stephen speaking there. He says, God doesn't stay in a temple made with hands. We read that in Hebrews as well. Right? He doesn't stay in a temple made with hands. Now, that's not something that just became true at that time. It was always true. It was just veiled from them. It was a mystery. That's why Paul speaks in Colossians 1 verse 26 to 27. He says, this mystery was hid from ages and ages, from generation to generation, but it's now revealed to the saints. What is the mystery? Christ in you. That means the hope of glory, yes. But it's Christ in you, meaning man is a true temple. Man is a true tabernacle of God. But as long as this was standing and functioning, it was veiled from them. Because they still went there to worship God. They still went there to pray to God. They still went there to get forgiveness. They still went there to get healing. Now that's why Hebrews 9 verse 8 says, it says the Holy Spirit signifying, as long as this is still functioning, the new way is not manifested. What is the new way? Jesus says in Hebrews 10, from verse 19 to 22, He says, He has consecrated a new way for us. Through the veil, that is His flesh. So what is the new way? Through the body. Through the body. To Christ in you. Through fellowship. All right. But as long as that was standing, it was veiled from them. Jesus even told the disciples in Luke 17, verse 21, that was even before the cross. He says, don't look for the kingdom out there. It's within you. The kingdom of God is within you. It's not out there somewhere. All right. Okay, so after the cross, we know that Jesus came. He came to fulfill the law. Then he also in Hebrews, it speaks that he, he actually he made the law of none effect. All right, the, the law that was fulfilled, is, it's ready to vanish away. All right, it was fulfilled, so it's ready to vanish away. Now, what happened after the cross, the Jews still went on sacrificing at the temple. They still went on worshiping there, praying there. So this was still functioning. So the Holy Spirit says, as long as this is functioning, their hearts are veiled. So now in 70 AD, what happened is the Romans came to destroy the whole Jerusalem. With the temple and everything. So the Jews, their lives, as they knew it, were totally destroyed. Totally. I mean, they kept the genealogies of the different tribes also in the temple. Because only the Levites could minister in the temple. Now, if they don't have the genealogies, they couldn't see who's supposed to become priest and who could minister in the temple. 
So that all that was destroyed during that time in 70 AD. Now, you can read about that. I'm just going to, just to name a few of, uh, scriptures that you can go read about that. And there's, there's actually a bunch of scriptures about the destruction of Jerusalem. But in 1 Thessalonians 5, you can read about it. 2 Peter 3, you can read about it. Jesus prophesied about it in Matthew 24, Luke 21, Mark 13. Now, I will go to some of them now. And also in Revelation 18 and 17, it speaks about that, the destruction of that. Revelation 18 and 17 speaks about the mystery Babylon. It speaks about the, the whore that was riding the beast. The whore referred to Israel because many times in the Old Testament, we can see that they became the harlot because they committed adultery with Rome and other nations at that time. But in that time, it was Rome. Just before Jesus was crucified, Pilate was standing there with Jesus and Barabbas. He says, who do you want? And they called Barabbas, Barabbas, Barabbas. And Pilate asked them, well, what about Jesus, your king? And then they, they shouted, and you can read it in John. He said, we have no king but Caesar. They said they have no king but Caesar. There they committed adultery again with Rome. They were actually divorcing God at that stage. All right. So they were the, the whore that was riding the beast. The beast was Rome. Then mystery Babylon was speaking about Jerusalem. All right. Jerusalem became like Babylon. Then after that, we see the, the marriage supper of the Lamb, but I will come to that. Let's go to Luke 21, verse 20 quickly. I just want to show you guys something here. Now, this is Jesus prophesying about the destruction of Jerusalem. All right? You can even you can go read in Matthew 24. I think it's from verse, I think, 34. He says, all these things will take place in your generation. Not our generation. That generation. All right. Now, listen to what he says to them. In Luke 21, verse 20, he says, When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out, and let those in the country not enter the city. So he's speaking about the people living in Judea. He's not speaking about us living here. All right. So he says, when they see the armies surrounding Jerusalem, they have to flee. Don't even go back to get your clothes or anything. Flee immediately. Now let's go to Matthew 24, the mate of this verse, from verse 14. Uh, let me read from verse 15. It says, okay, so when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. So the abomination there that makes the abomination of desolation was the Roman armies. All right? The holy place there, the whole Jerusalem and the land of Jerusalem was seen as the holy place, the holy land. All right? And Luke 21 just clarifies to us, it was the Roman armies. Because they were the abomination that came to make Jerusalem desolate, destroyed. All right? And it happened in 70 AD. Interesting, I just want to read on in Luke 21. I just want to show you something there quickly. 22, Luke 21 verse 22. Then he says, for this is the time of punishment in fulfillment of all that has been written. Some translations say the time of vengeance or the days of vengeance. That all that has been written will be fulfilled. When Jesus, before they entered Jerusalem... 
He told his disciples in Luke 18, verse 31 to 33, he says, all things written about me through the prophets will be fulfilled in Jerusalem on, the, on, on his way. Then in Luke 24, verse 44, he says, it is necessary that all things written about him, about Jesus now, that was written in the law, in the prophets, in the Psalms, should be fulfilled. Okay? But now in Luke 21, he says, all things that are written. And when he says that, it's not the whole Bible as we know it. It's the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, the Psalms. He says, these are the days that all things that are written be fulfilled. Because the law spoke about or prophesied about the destruction of Jerusalem. You can read that in Deuteronomy 32. Where also in the law it says, when you do this and this, this will happen. Your land will be desolate and everything. That's why it was a witness against them. All right? Because it spoke about the destruction of the Jews and as their nation and the temple and everything else. Also in the prophets, they prophesied about this. Isaiah, many of the prophets. All right, so he says then, those are the days that all of those things will be fulfilled. Everything that is written, all the prophecies will be fulfilled in those days. All right, so we're not waiting for a future destruction or anything. It happened there. Okay. Now, Matthew 5 verse 18. Jesus says, not one letter of the law will disappear until heaven and earth pass away. Not one letter of the law will pass away until heaven and earth pass away. When was the law destroyed? When was this, the functioning, the sacrifice and everything, when did it come to an end? It was destroyed 70 AD. Because then, after that, they didn't sacrifice anymore. After the cross, it was fulfilled at the cross. It was fulfilled there. But the Jews kept on going on with the, with the sacrifices. Yeah, it was totally destroyed. Okay? So until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter of the law will pass away. So it was this heaven and this earth that passed away. Not our heaven and earth as we understand it. Okay? All right. Let's go to Revelation 19 quickly. From 7 to 9. Does it make sense? All right. Okay, I'm going to read from verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory. Now remember I told you guys, Revelation 17 and 18 spoke about the destruction of the temple. All right? Then after that, John says this, he sees this. He says, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. All right. So the marriage supper took place there. I just want to, let's go to Revelation 21. From verse 1. So John says there, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. So this passed away. Then he says, and there was no more sea. No more sea. No more outer court. One commentator said that there's no more outer court for the common people to come and get close to God or to worship God. Because the rest of Israel could enter here but only here, all right? He says, no more outer court. He says, we are the new heaven and earth. We are the new temple, the royal priest. So he says, for the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. 
So that new city, the new Jerusalem, is the bride prepared for her husband, which is Christ. Okay? Now let's see quickly. Go to verse 14. Revelation 21 verse 14. The wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The 12 disciples. Those were the foundations of the city. Let's go to Ephesians 2 from verse 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of His household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus Himself as the chief cornerstone. In Him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in Him you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. So there it is. The city is us. Built on the foundation of the apostles. The chief cornerstone being Jesus Christ. Right? And we are built into a building and habited, or through a habitation by the Spirit of God. All right. So we, the temple, the new city, the new Jerusalem, the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is God. All right. Um, 1 Peter 2, from verse uh, 4. As you come to Him, the living stone, rejected by humans, not chosen by God and precious to Him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So again, it says, we are living stones built up into a spiritual house where God lives. So how did Jesus prepare a place? From here to there, this happened. So the marriage supper happened after the veil. The thing that veiled them to have fellowship with God was taken out. The marriage supper took place. Because supper in those days was, was also seen as fellowship. Okay? To have fellowship. Fellowship of Christ. Free access to God. So this happened. So in this time, from the resurrection to 70 AD, it was about 40 years. Jesus was preparing a place. He was preparing a place. How did he prepare a place? He prepared the, their minds that they are the city. The city is not out there. The temple is not out there. You're the temple. Busy preparing their minds. And then the last veil was taken out. So they could see and they can have fellowship with Christ within them. All right. True fellowship. Now, God's plan from the beginning was for all of Israel. When he chose Israel to be priests. Now, when Jesus told the disciples, I'm going to prepare a place for you in my father's house, he was also telling them, I'm going to make you priests. Because only the priest could minister in the house of God. All right? So he was telling them, I'm going to make you a holy priesthood. If you read in Exodus 19 verse 6, before the law was given, God told Moses, he said, you guys will be, or Israel will be to me a holy nation, a holy priesthood, a royal priesthood actually. All right? A royal priesthood. But then, on Mount Sinai, the Israelites told Moses, no, no, we don't want to speak to God. You go speak to God. So they had free access, and they said, no, we don't want free access. We don't want fellowship. You go speak to God for us. There they stopped it. There the veil happened, all right? So that veil had to be taken out for free fellowship again. All right. So it happened there after 70 AD. And it, in a way, it's still happening because we have free fellowship with Christ. We are free to eat from the tree of life within us. The new way is manifested. 
It's not somewhere at a building somewhere. It's within us. Christ within us. All right. We have free access. Now, to close off, why did God use the concept of a tabernacle? If man was always the true tabernacle of God, the true temple of God, why did God use this, the concept of this? Now, again, we have to understand the historical context of what happened back then. First, God, he chose Abraham. He called him out of the Gentile nation. Then later on, when Abraham, he got a son, Isaac, God commanded him and said, okay, go sacrifice Isaac at this place, this mountain. Now, interestingly, I heard a guy preach on this, and he said, ever wondered why Abraham didn't even complain? Yeah, God asked him, okay, go sacrifice your son, your only son. Go kill him. He didn't even complain. He just went. Now, I know we read in Hebrews that he believed that God will raise him from the dead. Okay, but still, the act of killing your only child, even if God raised him afterwards, yeah, that act is enough to put guilt on you forever. All right? But Abraham didn't complain. He just went with it. The culture Abraham grew up in sacrificed their children to false gods. It was a normal thing for them back then. They sacrificed their children to false gods, and the more valuable the sacrifice was, it showed their commitment. The more it showed their commitment towards their false gods, right? So it was something common in those days, all right? So that's why Abraham, okay, here God asked me, here God asked me to go sacrifice. It wasn't something new to him, all right? Okay, if God asked you to sacrifice your child, yeah, you will not be able to do that, and in the first place, you will know it's not God speaking to you. That's not God. All right. Okay, so Abraham went. He went to a mountain that God showed him. We also know that they say it was the same mountain that Jesus was crucified on. So he's on the mountain. He's ready to kill Isaac. Then God stopped him. And he provided the, it was a ram in the, in the bush. Yes. But what was God saying to Abraham? He was telling him, I'm not like your false gods. I don't need the sacrifice of your son. All right. So God stripped that away. That lie is stripped away. Then Israel was for about plus minus 400 years in Egypt. All right? They served there. Now the Egyptians believed their God lived in temples. So they had temples, and in their temples there was also a holy place where they kept the idol that represented their God. And also they had priests uh, ministering in those temples. So that concept crept into the minds of the Israelites. So when God instructed Moses to build a tabernacle... For him, it wasn't something new to them. They were familiar with the concept, all right, that God lives in a temple. Now, we also, sometimes we forget, but Moses was, he was taught in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. It says it there in the Bible. But the only difference is when God instructed Moses to build the tabernacle, it was built according to the true tabernacle. That was the only difference, all right? And all the ministry that took place in that tabernacle was a shadow of the, the true ministry that Jesus came to do in your hearts. All right. Okay. It was a shadow of the true things. Oh, Jesus was a substance of what that stood for. All right. Now, so somewhere in the Old Testament, the ark that was kept here, that represented God, was stolen. It was stolen. It wasn't there anymore. So when Jesus died on the cross, and Pastor John mentioned it last time, the veil was torn there was no ark of the covenant, right? So God already showing them, I'm not here. I'm not in your temple. 
not living there. Then at 70 AD, he stripped away the last lie, the temple. So what was God doing? He came down to the level of man to strip away all the lies. First, he stripped away the high places. The high places, we see that also in the Old Testament. The Israelites, when they turned away from God, they went and sacrificed at the high places to Baal because they believed the higher the place, the closer they are to God. That's also a lie they believed. Then he stripped away the ark. Then he stripped away the temple to manifest the new way, which is man. That's why Paul said in Acts 17 to unbelievers, he says, we all are God's offspring. And in him, we live and move and have our being. All right. So how do this apply to our lives today? Most of us know that God lives in us. We know that. But do we act like that? Do we act like that always? Sometimes we still find ourselves begging to God. Begging for God to come through. He's here. He's here. That's also not understanding and knowing that God's inside of you. That's the number one problem of racism in the world. Because when you still see people as black, white, brown, evil, bad, good, bad, you're not seeing the temple of God. You're not seeing Christ in them. You're still seeing them as bad according to their actions, according to their skin color. Not seeing them as a true tabernacle of God. So it's our responsibility first to act, to start acting like we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, that God is in us, and reveal that to people around us, to see them, to treat them like that. All right. So I'm just going to pray for you guys. So Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your words. And I thank you for your truth that is revealed. And I thank you that it will enlighten people's hearts, Father, that you are not far from them. That you're not somewhere they need to go to, but you are inside of them. And they have free access to you. They have free fellowship with you, Father. So I want you, Father, just to reassure people, Father, that you are there. You are faithful and that you are one with us. Now thank you, Father, that we can live with that in mind. And help us to, to manifest Christ everywhere we go, Father. Now thank you for your goodness. Now thank you for your people. And I just speak that you will bless them, Father, that your blessings will manifest in their lives, Father. That everything that they are in you will manifest in their lives, Father. Everything that they are partakers of Christ will manifest in you, Father, and in them, in their lives, Father. I thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.